This is Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Today we explore caregiving. Most of us never prepare to be a caregiver, but for many the job is thrust upon us when a loved one, like an elderly parent or grandparent, falls and breaks a hip or just needs a lot more care. Or when you have a family member who has a disability, or when you have a loved one whose health is suddenly affected by an accident or chronic illness. But during her last three years of that journey with pancreatic cancer, um, when the cancer returned again for that third time, my mom and dad moved in with me and I was thrust into being their primary caregiver. I was managing all the logistics, performing all the nursing duties um, and bathing her and eventually carrying her. And I was handling all the insurance paperwork and finances and taking all the calls and it was the hardest and loneliest time in my life. Rosalind Carter, the former first lady and wife of U.S. President Jimmy Carter, famously said, there are only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who need caregivers. Caregiving may be one of the most important things you'll ever do in your life, but the first important lesson you'll learn is that you can't do it alone. Stay tuned. We'll share important tips about how to care for your loved one, and just as important, how to care for yourself so you can provide the care your loved one deserves. The purpose of this podcast is to foster discussion, not to provide advice. The information shared should never be used as an alternative to obtaining personalized advice from a healthcare professional. And listeners should seek such advice independently if they have any questions related to their physical or mental health. This podcast hosts different viewpoints and the opinions of the speakers do not necessarily reflect the views of HPE. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. I'm Bob Peacock. Whether you know it or not, caregiver is something that you will likely add to your resume at some time in your life. It can happen to anyone at any time, and it's nearly always unexpected, which is why this episode is so important. Suppose a loved one in your family gets seriously ill or is in a debilitating accident. They may need for you to help them get through this very tough period in their life. And although you're always happy to help, caregiving means you'll have to learn to juggle their needs with your own needs and schedules. Or suppose you have a son or daughter with special needs or with a chronic illness. You'll discover that caring for that loved one is a full-time job that can last for the rest of their life. It's also a fact that people are living longer today than ever before. By 2030, experts say that one in six people on Earth will be age 60 or older. And by 2050, that population will double to 2.1 billion people. The number of persons age 80 or older is expected to triple by 2030, reaching 426 million people. What does all this mean to you? Well, as our world population ages, it will force more adult children, spouses, relatives, and friends into caregiving roles. As people grow old, many will develop medical and mental conditions that require them to need extra help. And with rising health care costs in many areas, those people will require care at home. 
And listen to this. When a loved one develops dementia or Alzheimer's or has a stroke or another major health issue, they say that only 10% of the time spent for their care happens in the hospital provided by a professional health care worker. The other 90% of that time is spent at home with care provided by a family member like you. Today's episode is one that hits close to home. My father had a long and happy life that ended in 2020, but the last year of his life was quite challenging because of health issues. It was challenging for him, yes, but also for our family. We did our best to provide the care he needed at home, which is where he preferred to be. But unfortunately, I lived nearly a thousand miles away. I had a career that kept me very busy, so I was unable to spend a lot of time at my parents' home. Still, my wife and I did what we could to manage my parents' home maintenance and financial responsibilities. But the bulk of the day-to-day responsibilities fell upon my sister, who lived 30 minutes from my parents' house. Every day, without fail, she would drive to their home to provide whatever help they needed. At the end of my dad's life, my father took countless prescription drugs, and each week my sister carefully counted and put his pills into multiple marked cups so he wouldn't miss a dose. She became the family driver, taking my parents to numerous doctor's appointments, picking up prescriptions, and taking my mom to get groceries or hair appointments or any other appointment she had. She also became their housekeeper. And that's only the start. My sister was just entering her retirement years, but little did she know that she was stepping out of one career and into what would be the most challenging job she ever faced, that of a caregiver. Today's guest has a similar story. She became a caregiver for first her mom and now her dad. After experiencing what a caregiver goes through and what they need to know and do, she co-founded and is currently CEO of a company called Ionacare, which has developed an app-based technology that supports the family caregiver, providing encouragement and empowering and equipping family caregivers with the resources they need as they navigate the challenges of caregiving at home. Jessica Kim, welcome. Hi, Bob. It's so great to be here with you. And thank you so much for that intro. I mean, sharing your personal story is so, so powerful. So I appreciate that so much. Let's start with your personal story. What was your experience as a caregiver? Sure. You know, I'll I'll never forget when I was 30 weeks pregnant with my second child, Grant. And I was at the movie theater and I kept getting hammer calls from everyone in my family And so I finally stepped out and was told, oh my gosh, Jess, mom has pancreatic cancer. Hmm. And I dropped to my knees and I completely started crying. People thought I was about to give birth, Hmm. (laughs) but instead I was just so devastated. And I remember asking my OB doctor if I can take a flight to New Jersey. I lived in Chicago at that time. And he said, you are not going anywhere at 32 weeks pregnant. And I told him, but wait, my mom has pancreatic cancer. And he immediately wrote me a note and said, worst case scenario is that you'll have the baby on the plane. You got this. Go see your mom. And so I knew it was serious, but that turned into a seven and a half year journey. Mm. And I even call it a battle. I know that's a controversial word, but in our mind, I do feel like it was a battle with pancreatic cancer. 
which was a blessing in a sense that we got so much time with her. She wouldn't have met all seven grandchildren had it not been for the amazing doctors and miracles that happened throughout those years. Um, but during her last three years of that journey with pancreatic cancer, um, when the cancer returned again for that third time, my mom and dad moved in with me from New Jersey to Boston, where I live now. And I was thrust into being their primary caregiver. I was managing all the logistics, performing all the nursing duties, like draining her stomach several times a day. I was feeding her uh, all these dietary restricted uh, meals and, um, and bathing her and eventually carrying her. And I was handling all the insurance paperwork and finances and mm -hmm. taking all the calls. And it was the hardest and loneliest time in my life. And Bob, I know you understand all of this because you shared your own journey. I, I do understand. And, and, and I know there's going to be a lot of people who have not gone through it. Yep. And why is being a caregiver so much harder than most of us would expect? What was the most difficult part for you? I mean, it was the juggling of everything, right? It's like, it's, it's, you know, some people don't call themselves a caregiver and they say, well, I'm just being a daughter. I'm just being the mom. It's like, no, it, yes, you are. But it's a whole other role that is full time plus that you're adding to an already busy life. And, you know, so for me, you know, I was always a working mom of three kids, you know, they were ages 10, seven and five. And wow. it was just so much. I became one of those stats where I finally felt forced to quit my job for the first time ever in my career to be their full time caregiver. And I did that for about two years until she did hospice in the home and passed away in my home. Mm. Um, and what was so fascinating is that I didn't utilize a single resource or ask for help at that time because I had no idea what help existed. And even if I heard of a certain product or service, it was utterly exhausting to piece it all together into a plan that actually made a difference in my life. And so the eye-opening realization that addresses even your question was that, you know, I was surrounded by doctors, but no one understood how to manage a care that happens in the home. And as you said, Bob, over 90% of the actual care happens in the home environment. Right. And yet the infrastructure and all the people that we have surrounding us in the hospital setting does not exist in the home. Right. It's still mind boggling to me. Yeah, so, it you is. Know, right. And it's, it's like, if that's what we need and that's what we, you know, people need to provide that care why now, and even more so, the trends are saying, you know, are, are moving in the direction where more and more is pushed into the home since the pandemic and beyond that. And so, you know, that's where, you know, in my grief, uh, I was frustrated more than anything. I was like, why did I just experience it that way? And why in all areas of my life, whether it's shopping or coordinating with friends or social life, like we could do so much utilizing technology and utilizing humans where they are best. Why are we not applying that to one of the most important things that will happen in our lives? And so that is really where Steve Lee, my co-founder and I got together and we realized, oh my gosh, 50 more, 54 million plus people in the U.S. alone, it's more than that globally are caregivers. There's a major shift in everything happening in the home and yet there's no infrastructure. And so that's why we built Ionicare. And I want to talk a lot more about your company uh, in a moment, but I'm curious, what is the significance of the name Ionicare? Mm, thanks for asking. Um, it has a lot of significance. And so when we really thought about what ultimately 
at the end of the day, what are we doing here? And the I-A-N-A of Ionicare stands for, I am not alone. I am not alone. I love that. It's, it's a really important message in today's podcast. Since so many of us become caregivers at some point in our lives, I think mm-hmm. it's really important for listeners to understand that it's not just about providing care for their loved one, but also just as important to intentionally take time and effort to care for themselves. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, as we think about caregiving, it's uh, not only caring and supporting the person, you know, the care recipient, we say, or the patient or whoever the care recipient is, but you have to take care of the caregiver themselves because they are the source of all that energy and support. Let's talk about who qualifies as a caregiver. I was reading a New York Times article that said, according to two organizations, the American Association of Retired Persons and the National Alliance for Caregiving, the family caregiver was typically 49 years old, usually a woman who was caring for an older relative. But since many baby boomers became divorced and single, They left a lot of the caregiving to their children. And according to one poll, those younger caregivers are more likely to be men. Also, today, more younger people are taking on caregiving roles. So those are generally who caregivers are. Mm -hmm. What are some tips that you would give just off the top of your head? What are some tips that you would give caregivers? Well, actually, Bob, if we can, because what you just shared and all those stats are, as we say, mind-boggling, and I would love, if we can, to spend a little time on that definition. Oh, yeah, please. I mean, I think that is a, a huge piece where we have to start, because if we don't define it correctly, we're not going to be able to support it correctly, right? Yeah. And so caregiving, as you shared, I mean, I, I was like nodding my head <laughs> so, um, you know, passionately as you were sharing all those stats. And, you know, it, we are at this very critical, pivotal point in our world right now where caregiving is the issue of our time. And the reason why we are surprised at some of those stats or, oh, my gosh, there are more male caregivers or young caregivers is because we typically define caregiving as early child care and elder care, right? And so child care typically refers to young children who cannot be left home alone. And elder care typically refers to older people um, who uh, just have lost some of their ability to care for themselves. So they need help again. Um, But, and those are critical and important and still a huge piece of caregiving. But what about the woman in her thirties who may not have children of their own, but is caring for her adult sibling with disabilities? Or the dad of two teenagers who is divorced, who is now caring for his sister with cancer. Or a 65-year-old grandmother now taking care of her grandchildren and her grown daughter who has major chronic conditions. And so when you think about this, everyone listening will probably say, oh, wow, now that you've brought in that definition, I definitely know a ton of people or I am a caregiver, right? Um, And so when we define and expand the definition of caregiving, you realize that it is going to impact and already impacts every single yeah, one of right. us in some shape or form. And so, yeah, sorry to take us back there. But no, that's... Yeah. 
I think that's perfect. Uh, and let's talk about, before we kind of get into some some tips, yeah. talk about some of the basic responsibilities that a caregiver might have. It's not just about keeping your loved one company and providing emotional support. That's right. Uh, AARP said more than half of caregivers perform such difficult jobs as helping someone bathe or use the toilet and even prepare injections, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, because when we think about caregivers, uh, oftentimes, if even if you Google it, you see all these stock images of caregivers, you know, being by the bedside, holding the care recipient's hand. Um, but the reality of being a caregiver requires so much more. So yes, all the physical and clinical sides, even though that we're not licensed, right? We're doing the injections. Um, we are doing all that bathing and caring and all the physical care. Uh, I also think about these other four buckets of what's on a caregiver's responsibility in terms of their plate. There's care coverage, right? So if you have a care recipient that cannot physically care for themselves and what what whether they're too old, young or too sick to, you know, providing care when they you can't physically be there is a whole managing process, right? So there's a care coverage part of it. And then there's the planning and logistics that often gets overlooked, but that takes a lot of time. The research, the finances, the coordination, the communication with the clinical side, legal, living arrangements, like all of those things and typically resources that are available are only open like 10 to 4 p.m., right? So it has a direct conflict for the percentages that you were just sharing of people who are working part-time or full-time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a planning and logistics. And then there's advocacy in the sense of um, understanding the clinical system, knowing what questions to ask the doctors, knowing your rights as a patient and family caregiver. You know, healthcare is so complex. So Our true. Care systems are so complex. It's often not in a consumerized format. And so just knowing what you can do and advocate for yourself and things are so busy, it's overwhelming for the healthcare and care system in general for our society and government right now all over the world. Yeah. That, um, you know, the caregiver tends to be the one constant throughout the entire journey. And so the advocacy piece is huge. And then of course, you know, the mental and emotional support, um, Caregiving has uh, unique challenges that impact both our physical and mental health. Uh, caregivers don't take care of themselves. Uh, you know, I think the latest report is that 72% of family caregivers uh, are clinically depressed mm. and healthcare costs of uh, caregivers are 40% higher. And it's because they don't typically have the time or energy to manage their own appointments as they're managing everyone else's. And so when we think about caregivers, I think it's so important because when we either interact with caregivers, whether it's in our personal life or if they're our coworkers, understanding all these other buckets on top of an already busy life, right? It helps us react then to say, I need to give you more grace and understanding and just know that there's so much that I don't see that you may not even share. So when someone becomes a caregiver for the first time, they may have no idea what that entails or how to get started. Uh, and I'm sure in like in your case, it was overwhelming. Uh, as you said, you were in that sandwich generation when you're caring for your own young children at the same time and working. Um, do you have some suggestions to help them? Yeah. Oh man, that, that could be a, a whole hour in itself, but I, <laughs> I think I would start with 
call yourself a caregiver. Um, more than anything, it's acknowledging this extra role for yourself. It's embracing the fact that uh, there that it is a separate role, right? And that that typically then requires to be prepared. That there are other resources. Um, you know, I, I always say because you know, and I want to spend time a little bit on this because sometimes there is some a debate out there that says, should we call ourselves a caregiver or are we just the daughter doing it? And I kind of mentioned this before, but it is a big point because more than anything, for caregivers going through it, they don't recognize that they are a caregiver, and so you never really fully demand or get or seek out that support that you need. Ah, right? yes, and that's what causes the burnout, the frustration, the I can't do this, I don't know what's happening, and so. Just like when we become a mom, for example, we know it's going to add so much to our plate, right? And it's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing, but it's more. We need to rethink what we do with our day. We need to rethink our support structure. We need to rethink how we um, manage work and life. And it's the same thing as a caregiver. And so I think calling yourself a caregiver is something that I really, really want everyone out there to do first. Um, and, you know, and then I think I always start with mentality because I think that's a, a, you know, we can be our biggest roadblock. I think the other thing in terms of mentality is, I don't know if you've heard Bob, but of the, and kind of movement, it's the A and D movement that, you know, you can have uh, emotions, uh, that are completely different truths, but you can feel it at the same time. And it's normal. Like it's okay to feel angry and still be grateful at the same time. You're allowed to be sad and still find joy in things in the same breath. And so often I talk to caregivers and they feel they're guilty or confused when they go through this roller coaster of emotions. Um, you know, that is not helpful if you do that because sometimes all we have in our sanity and resilience is to not feel bad about how we're even feeling. And so our hearts need those breaks. We are not meant to feel one emotion alone, you know, because that is in itself that will cause burnout. So, you know, that's on the mentality side to then set yourself up. And I think the posture is know that there is support. I look back at the experience that I, I shared with you with my mom and I didn't, I was completely alone, isolated, burnt out, quit my job, everything that we want to prevent people to do today because I didn't know that there was even support out there, that it was even a thing. Uh, we don't talk about it enough in our society. We're changing that now. But know that there is support and with confidence that you can seek it, ask for it, and leverage it. Um, that is huge because everyone listening and if we support caregivers, the specifics of the situation will be so unique to everybody each person. Yes. But if you know that there's support, then you will seek it with confidence. And so that is where I would first tell people to do is embrace the mentality, embrace the role and seek support because it's there and you need to be ready to receive it. Absolutely. And you talked about uh, the importance of being an advocate. Often a patient can't or won't advocate for themselves. So caregivers can step in and use their voice. But you have to do this really carefully. 
keep in mind generational customs. For example, some generations were taught to do anything and everything a physician says, no questions asked. Also, it's difficult for a parent to become the, the person being told what to do by a caregiver. Or they, they even might perceive the caregiver's demands as being disrespectful. It's a good idea to include the person receiving the care in the care decisions uh, and making sure that the doctors don't talk uh, as if the patient isn't in the room. Oh my gosh, yes. That is so true. It reminds me of one of the most hurtful moments for all of us as a family, including my mom, was when she was basically being told that treatment can no longer move forward. And my mom was sitting right there. She was closing her eyes. She was in the wheelchair. And I remember the oncologist talking in the room about her as if she wasn't even there. And she just kind of blurted out, it's basically the end. But I remember just feeling like that was just so insensitive. Oh, yeah. I think it's so true, you know, and I what I didn't mention is I'm actually caring for my dad right now. It's quite ironic in a sense as I um, got thrust into caring for my dad. He is uh, living with us. He's 84. He has congestive heart failure um, and multiple chronic conditions. Um, you know, we were just in the ER last month and and I'm talking to his doctors and they uh, they are talking to me and I said, well, dad, what do you think about this? What do you think about what the doctor is saying? And I say in front of the doctor and the doctor then kind of steps back and say, oh, that's right. Yeah, we should include, the, you know, your dad in his own care because he too is really weak right now where he feels like he can't really speak up for himself. It's not only towards clinicians, but it's for supporters and friends. This is a team. You know, we are not meant as humans to live and care for each other alone and so whether it's the care recipient or the caregiver or anyone involved, we have to see ourselves as this collective. Yeah, you're right. And, and I would suggest getting organized, you know, making a list of all the things that need to be done. I think that can, number one, help make it more manageable. And number two, it kind of lets you think about who can help with that. Yeah. Uh, and you can maybe consider the things that you're really good at and, you know, some of us may be really good at building relationships or dealing with finances or fighting the insurance companies, um, shopping for food and cooking. Yes. Uh, it's all of those things. And then you get help with the things that you're not yes, good at. Yes, that's absolutely right. And kind of what you're, what you're referring to, Bob, is with my sister and my brother. So it's the three of us. I'm the youngest of three. Um, you know, I live in Boston. My sister lives in Chicago. My brother lives in New Jersey. And my dad lives with me now. So I'm talking about our current situation. And there was frustrations. So I was like, we lived this through mom and it was all on me. <laughs> um, yeah, and, yeah. you know, I'm not doing this again. And, you know, I think sometimes we think if you're going to help you, I'd be all in or nothing. And we need to get rid of that mentality. And so what I realized is, you know what, my brother, he just doesn't feel as comfortable with the physical aspects of care, right? He has a strict work environment, so he can't take a lot of time off. He's not as flexible. 
And that's just not his nature is to come and be by my dad's side all the time and things like that. But he is great at finances. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know what, Rich? You are chief financial officer of my family. (laughs) You are CFO and I'm going to treat you like that and you better own it because I cannot deal with any more of that. And then my sister, she's a dermatologist, oncologist, right? So I was like, okay, you know a lot about the medical space. I was like, we're going to make you chief medical officer. And, you know, but what that means is, you know, if, if I'm having trouble scheduling some things or now we're looking for a different type of specialist, you do the research. You can do that from afar, right? You do the research, you make the calls, you answer the voicemails, take that off my plate because I am like right now chief everything else officer, right? Like I have to actually care for him daily and get him there and everything. And that has made such a critical difference, both in preserving our relationships because family caregiving can break up families. We see this all the time. And it's because it's so stressful. It's emotional. A lot of things from the past comes up, right? Like, oh, you've always been like that. You know, you've never shown up. Like just things come up from the past. That's family dynamics is a critical, critical piece of what we even help manage and navigate through. Um, and so being clear, you know, it's the whole Brene Brown, clear is kind. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, the clearer you are, the more upfront you are. And so, you know, taking it to the whole nth level of giving them titles in a jokey kind of way, but saying, but I'm serious, like you do have to manage all the finances, yeah. um, you know, uh, has helped so much in our own, in my own situation now that we really apply with, um, you know, all the caregivers that we serve today. As a, a parent of an adult son who has Down syndrome mm. um, and knowing many other parents in the disability world, caregiving is just a major part of our lives. It affects nearly every decision we make. And we have to provide social, financial, health care services uh, for our loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we rely on professionals, uh, to help our loved ones, the bulk of the work falls on the parents. We learn to rely on others. You know you need the help. You can't manage all the responsibilities by yourself. And a lot uh, of that help is even available from friends and family members. They, they say they want to help, but so many of us are totally uncomfortable asking for That's it. Right. What were your experiences and what did you learn from them? Yeah. Being specific is really important. So it's another element of being, you know, clear is kind, but I think being specific. So what typically happens with friends and family um, is that they always say things like, let me know what I can do to help, or I'm here if you need me, or I'll take the kids one day so you can get a break. I'm here for you. But what happens is then am I going to text them say, and when is that dinner coming, Bob? <laughs> no, that's like so awkward. Or right. will I say, wait, what date are you taking my kids? Because I could use a break. It just, burden is the number one reason why help is not exchanged across all parties, which is so fascinating, right? It's like, I feel like a burden asking for help. And then people feel like a burden asking what I need, or just they feel like a burden if they don't want to intrude. They just think, oh, they're going through such a sensitive situation. I don't know what to say, so I won't say anything at all. And so... um, 
you know, being as specific as possible, you know, this is more of a call out to supporters, but even saying as caregivers to say, oh, great, you know, just let me know the details and then let's make it happen is a response that a caregiver can say, Uh, because then if they really mean it, they will. And we've actually built this. So we do have this layer on the Ionicare app um, that is available globally. And uh, it addresses this very issue because what we discovered was that friends and family are the first responders in a caregiver's life in the home, right? And so often gets underutilized because of this burden that we're talking about. And so in our app, we make it so clear, both caregivers can put out requests, but you can't put a request out unless you say specifically, what is it? What date and time? What is the location? Like you have to be as specific as possible. You can even assign it to specific people and then it blasts out to your team. And we also empower, which is very unique to our solution, is that we empower supporters to offer proactively help to the caregiver. So I can say, Bob, I'm going to take your kids after baseball practice uh, and feed them dinner, take them out to ice cream, and I'll bring them back by 9 p.m. And that's all in my initial offer to you. So you see it come through the app and you're like, oh, wow, Jess really means it because all the details are here and all you have to do is click one button that says, yes, I accept. And it's on both of our calendars with all the details. So we didn't even have to text or talk to each other. And so this element of burden is um, something that we specifically try to address through these through the Ionicare app of the personal social circles mobilization. Um, and so, you know, I tried to put all my lessons into this solution is <laughs> being as specific as possible, identifying, don't be afraid to ask um, who your supporters are. So we often think, okay, who am I going to invite to my team? You know, my sister, my brother live away. I really have no one. And then we're like, no, you do. If you have other school parent friends, you have neighbors, book club members, you know, your, your church or synagogue or any kind of faith-based organization that you're part of, you, you have coworkers. And the, one of the best stories I've heard, um, with a caregiver who's using our solution said, I really felt like I had nobody, but then I realized I go, we said, who, where do you go every week? Just give an example. They're like, well, I take my daughter to dance class. And we're like, okay, do you talk to anyone during that? And she's like, well, I don't have any friends, but I do talk to this other mom all the time. But like, okay, did you ever share the situation? Yeah. And then she did say, oh my gosh, well, I could take your daughter to dance class if that ever helps. I'm like, there you go. There's a supporter. She invited her to the team. They'd started with dance class and fast forward four months later, she, they have become great friends because of the way that they've shown up for each other. Yes, and yes. so I think it's expanding who we can even ask to be on our team and know that it's not a burden, but actually the way we're built as humans to be, have this privilege to show up for each other. And that's what true community is. You talked about uh, family members and, and how it, how caregiving can really break down a family. Uh, What if your, your family members or siblings aren't sharing the burden Uh, In my own family, as I mentioned, I lived a thousand miles away. So the day-to-day burden fell on my sister. I know that even the perception that someone is not sharing the burden can cause resentment and hard feelings, which leads to even more stress. Yeah, it, it is a really hard thing. 
you know, we deal with this a lot across all the family caregivers that we serve as the family dynamics. And, you know, if you can't, if it gets to a point, well, one, it's to recognize, like you were saying, that not everybody needs to care in the same exact way. That is a big, big place to start uh, because it's almost impossible, right? So you're saying that you lived away, your sister was closer, um, but say, okay, Bob, I don't expect you to, you know, drive over every day because that's impossible. But what can you do, right, is the conversation as opposed to, well, look at all I'm doing and you're not doing all of it, right? Um, and so I think just recognizing that there are different roles to play. And then I think as a caregiver, one huge thing that I had to realize is being the one that was close and is close and my dad's <laughs> living with me is, and my dad actually was... Um, a brilliant psychiatrist. And so I grew up with all this kind of mental positioning and bracing kind of thing. And he's the one that told me, you know, I know you're frustrated with your sister and brother, but don't you ever think that because they're not showing up in the same way for me and this caregiving, that they love me less, that the way that they care is not equivalent to the level of love. Yeah. And that was so humbling for me. That for me brought down all these barriers of saying, you know what? that is true. You know, they can't help that they live far away or that, you know, that they have certain barriers to the way that they care. They also have different histories in their dynamic with my dad. Right. Um, and so I just had to realize that that is not equivalent to love. Um, and so a lot of it is not just what we require from others, our siblings, but it's also a change that we need to make in our own posture and mentality in our own hearts. Um, but then on the practical level, a lot of times you need an outside person to mediate because it's hard because of everything that we talked about. The history comes up, all these, all these resentment is already there, um, is that you need a mediator. And so there are many different ways you can have a friend mediate, you can, you know, have a professional mediate, but someone that says, Hey, let's all get together. And I'm one removed. I'm going to facilitate this conversation and kind of feed back to you what the other person is saying. I can't recommend that enough. Um, because if you don't do that and resentment grows, it can really break families apart, which is probably the opposite of what that care recipient wants. Right. And that is just like a triple quadruple loss for the whole family. Absolutely. So what are some of the helpful tips that you can give to caregivers? For for example, my sister always kept a list of personal information, like my parents' social security numbers, uh, prescriptions, passwords, yes. uh, user IDs, things like that. Any other ideas that come to mind? Yeah. So um, all the logistics of organization, like you said, like having everything in place, having the conversations also, like the emergency backup plan um, of who to call, what to call, you know, where do they go? Like just having that in one group place for everyone to be able to do. Um, of course, you know, create your like support system as we talked about. Um, and then, you know, I also think that a very practical thing is like, don't forget about taking care of your own mental health in this and recognizing that early. Um, and so some practical things there is because so much of it is bottled up in our own mind. And there's so much that's, that's happening that's hidden. Um, 
you know, I identified, you know, I was telling you, I, I, I gave titles to my brother and sister. I identified a close friend of mine. I said, you are my chief processing partner. <laughs> like I have permission to call you. And, and of course she, I say I have permission, but I asked her to be my partner. So I feel like I have that permission to call her at any given point and just vent. Yeah. And she receives it and she knows that's her role as my friend in this caregiving journey. And that has helped so much to make me feel like, oh my gosh, it's all on me and I'm alone in this. Um, and so the mental health part of it is a huge critical aspect of caregiving, um, that is so closely tied that we can't ignore. And I feel like if you're in that caregiving role, a lot of the tactics and practical parts of it, I feel like caregivers are some of the most resilient, resourceful human beings. You're going to figure that out. But if you don't take care of your mental state, you're not going to be in the right state to even figure out what you need to do. Absolutely. So, okay, let's talk about that. What are some tips? Let's talk about caregiving for yourself as the caregiver. For example, uh, taking even five and 10 minute breaks. What What yes. are some other things that come to your mind? Yeah. So if I, I love, before I go into tips, I love talking about like, why is mental, why is the mental load so high, you know, or like, because then I think we can address it. And I've put a lot of thought into this because we know it's so hard and um, there's so much on our plate, but I think for, for specifically for caregiving, um, you know, it's so tied to mental health. We all know that mental health is a must have need now. Um, you know, it, the fascinating thing is we actually pulled this employer who had really high engagement on their clinical mental health solution. And, uh, then we asked those users, who are you and why are you needing this mental health support? And 86% of that clinical health solution users self-identified as family caregivers and needing more support in that. And so when we think about mental health, family caregiving, you can't solve one without the other. It is the root cause and we have to we have to address that root cause. And so when we think about as a caregiver, why do we feel this? Because sometimes we don't have enough time to even like identify it. And if you don't identify it again, then you don't know how to address it or figure out how to address it. And so I think it's three major buckets that made it because that adds so much mental health issues for us. And one, it's the whole mental load, right? That there, there's, there's incredible sh stress of the hundreds of tasks, logistics, scheduling, emergency planning, all of that, um, that is on our plate. And I don't know if you are familiar with this term, it's called allostatic stress. So stress is normal, right? It's actually needed. It's the fight or flight reaction that yes, makes yes. us run away from a lion when it's chasing us. Yeah, We, right. we actually need stress in our life, right? Because um, it makes us run faster and, and react. But then there's always moments after stress that you're safe and you rest, right? But what's unique to caregivers is that that stress is constant. You never know when something's going to happen, a fall, a decline in health, professional caregiver not showing up, a bill that shows up that's way more than you thought. It's just constantly this fight and flight mode. And so we call that allostatic stress. And so there's never fully a known rest period that you can plan for or that you know that there's a cadence. And so I think understanding and recognizing that as caregivers, we are in this allostatic stress, then it's the most important thing is how do I 
set that known rest period. And then I think then for like what Bob, what you're saying is like then the five minute thing or the 10 minute meditation and um, like actually planning for it, getting coverage for it, not assuming that you can do it always at 2 p.m. every day. Right. But actually like leaving that space for it and and, and knowing the importance of it because caregivers often overlook the importance of caring for themselves. It's the, it's the first thing to get off their to-do list. But when you put it in the context of allostatic stress, and if you don't do it, it is very dangerous for our health and it's never going to come. Then you say, if I, if it's never going to come and I don't make it, it's never going to happen. So I have to make that time. So that commitment is first and foremost, what we need to do as caregivers. And then I think like the other bucket of mental weight, I would say uh, for caregivers is that anticipatory grief and grief of what's happening versus what you expected, right? So with caregiving, whether it's an initial shock of a new care situation, or even if it's a care situation where you're having a new baby, right? And um, a healthy new baby, but you will grieve the freedom that you once had or the grieve, um, you know, the lifestyle that you once had. And obviously when someone is sick, you worry about what's to come or you anticipate what is life going to be without that person. It, you don't even feel the permission to actually go through that process to embrace grief because you're so busy actually dealing with the care situation right in front of you, right? Um, I actually did listen to your grief uh, episode that I recommend everyone to listen to. It was fabulous. And when I, when I heard it, I was like, wow, this is so tied to caregiving. But that is a huge element of of mental load and mental stress. And then I think the third thing is isolation that um, we talked about, that it's so lonely um, as a caregiver. And, you know, we know the power of vulnerability, but even if you are so open about what you're going through, no one will fully understand all that happens minute by minute, no one. And so these hidden vulnerabilities um, that are unresolved causes this huge weight. Um, and so to address the, that isolation part, that's where it's like that processing partner or the support group, or, um, you know, you would seek that out because you know that that's a big part. So I think like, you know, knowing for me, you know, I always like, you know, before thinking about like, what do I do about it? I'm like, why, why is this what I'm going through? Why do I feel this? And then if I know what it is and identify it and I name it, then, then I can actually commit to finding a solution for that <laughs> because again, like, yeah. So Bob, I'm just so curious and I, you know, and I, and I, I'm, I'm sorry if you're not used to, if I turn it on you, but I just, you have such an incredible story as you shared and I've been dying to just give you space and, you know, everyone knows you, you are the host of this podcast and but you have shared, even in this episode, multiple caregiving stories and various different roles in caregiving and different care recipients. And I'm curious, what have you learned whether, you know, what have you learned from all those experiences or realized, or what do you want to tell people? Uh, well, there are so many lessons that you learn. Some of the things that, that we found were really helpful. Make a list of user IDs and passwords. Uh, make a list of monthly bills and other items that need to be paid. 
A living will or durable power of attorney for health care allows a designated person to make health care decisions for the loved one if that person is not able to make them for themselves. Also, a durable power of attorney for finance, which allows a designated person to access their finances and to pay bills. Also, medical, insurance, financial, end-of-life wishes, uh, and, and make sure you know where all that information is kept. Uh, it's really useful to have a list of contacts, including doctors and other medical people, insurance companies, lawyers, financial advisors. Make a list of medications, including doses and when they are to be taken, and bring those with you to all the doctor appointments. We also learn the, the value of having a list of service providers, such as electricians, gardeners, handymen, just other people who can provide help around the house. And everyday technology can seem really confusing to older people, and they might outright reject it at first. Uh, but then things like doorbell cameras, smart speakers, and wrist-worn trackers can be so helpful. A lot of us have those voice-activated assistants. They can answer questions and give reminders to take prescriptions or when to eat. Smartwatches can also detect falls and get help if the patient is not responsive. I also want to mention that there are many support groups out there, in person, on the phone, or on online that can help caregivers deal with their feelings or get help navigating caregiving. There's just so much that you don't know when you first become a caregiver. And um, I guess my, my recommendation would be to create a care team that can help you with advice or actions. Uh, in our cases, being parents of a, a son with Down syndrome, there are Down syndrome organizations that can help. You can use social media uh, to find experts. It may be worth the investment to get advice from professionals as well, such as a geriatric care manager or an elder care lawyer. In the U.S., the AARP offers state-by-state -state resource guides on caregiving, so that can be helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you're so right. There's so much technology and tools that allow us to see and care more, right, in the details. And it's all about the details when we think about caregiving. And speaking of technology, you developed a free app called Ionicare. I realize that not all parts of Ionicare are available to all our listeners, but are there some parts of Ionicare that are available worldwide and may be helpful to everyone? In general, if you're in Ionicare and you're part of it uh, and you even sign up for our newsletters and everything like that, we, we help you understand what your local resources are all over the world, right? So every country has a different type of system uh, and different local resources. But again, most of them are hidden um, and not as visible, and it's hard to navigate that. And so one, knowing that they are out there, even if they don't, they often don't have signs or websites. And so being able to um, ask your doctor, know that, uh, you know, they do exist all over the world. The biggest thing with caregiving is that um, everyone has a unique situation in terms of details, but there are shared needs and shared experiences, right? That we, that are universal to all of us across 
the whole world. I mean, there are cultural differences in terms of expectations or what's embedded in our culture or how open or closed we are in sharing it. So there are those unique cultural differences, but the actual act of caregiving for a human to another human that is universal. We think that the unique side of our caregiving situation makes us think that no one else understands what we are going through. Um, but once you open or change your mindset in that and you realize other people have gone through this, you're not the only one that has that specific condition or that care situation, but we also believe in the human side of it. And this is where humans can share their experiences with other humans and is one of the, the biggest sources of support and knowledge that you can't even learn in social social worker school, right? Tech and human, we always say that, but it's truly leveraging the, the value of tech, but truly valuing the human experience and heart that you cannot, you know, you, AI cannot take over that. <laughs> and that's what care is. Care is what makes us human. And that's what differentiates us from robots is the care part of it. Yes, yes. That's terrific. Uh, in, in closing, let's leave some, uh, some encouragement uh, to people who, who uh, may be experiencing the burden of being a caregiver right now. Mm. Um, and I'll give three from caringinfo.org. Mm -hmm. And I, if you want to add to those three, I would really appreciate it. So the first one was give yourself a break. Mm -hmm. Perfection is neither desirable nor possible. Give yourself time. It's important to approach caregiving like a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, being a caregiver is only part of your identity. Hold on to some of the rituals and activities that are important to you. And third, your greatest gift is your presence. Mm. All humans just want to be seen and loved and I think what you are doing as a caregiver is you are giving that great gift. Mm, I love that. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is thank you. Thank you, caregivers, for what you do, for the way that you care, for the way that you sacrifice and love, even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, or unlovable, that you continue to show up every single day the work that you do as a caregiver is the, one of the most important roles that you'll ever have. Whether you see it today, you will reflect on it later. And it is truly the definition of true love in my mind. Like being a caregiver is what true love is. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much, Jessica. Thank you, Bob. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I am not alone is a major theme of today's episode. Knowing where you can get the help you need to care for your loved one is important, but it's just as important that you take time to care for yourself as well. Caregiving is both challenging and rewarding, but it's important to listen to your own needs while you're caring for someone else. HPE has many resources available for HPE team members and their family members, including a free membership to Headspace, a popular app designed to help reduce your stress through mindfulness. 
And when you need someone to talk to, HPE's EAP is always available to HPE team members and their family members. Links to HPE's free resources, including the Employee Assistance Program, can always be found on the Global Wellness page on HPE Insider, or if you're in the U.S., on HPE Wellness at MyHPERewards.com. Once again, thanks to Jessica Kim, co-founder of Ionicare, for being my guest. And thank you for taking the time to listen. Take a moment to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an upcoming episode. Until next time, take care of yourself. Let's talk again soon.